Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. I don't know if you remember these. You probably do. I know as a kid, uh, I would see these infomercials, and they were Time Life Presents Songs of the 70s. You remember those? And they would scroll the titles on the screen, and they'd have the hosts go back and forth talking about, you know, what this song meant to them or the message of the song or a little bit about the origins of the song. And so I remember seeing those. Sometimes before school, there'd be commercials because, you know, I'd watch the news as an elementary school kid before school. I was that dorky of a kid even then. And, you know, today's show, there's a little, you know, after the weather report, you know, with Al Roker or Willard Scott when I was really little. Remember Willard Scott? Man, the Smuckers guy? Yeah, of course remember him. Anyway, so I would see these commercials, and so we're going to do that today. Okay, today is going to be a Time Life music production infomercial in a sermon. Okay, that's what we're going to do. So we are finishing up our series called Dynasty, in which we're looking at the first three kings of ancient Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And today we're concluding that series by looking at a love song. We're going to look at Song of Solomon, one of the most unique books in the entire Bible. And I think, I was thinking about this week, I think this is the first time in 15 years of ministry that I've ever preached from the Song of Solomon. So this is a first for all of us, okay? So we're talking about a love song. And Solomon, as we talked about last week, he was a ladies' man. So King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, so 300 side pieces as well. He had obviously had to live in a large place. I don't know how this worked, how many bunk beds. I mean, I I just don't know how you can do that, what kind of compound he lived on. Uh, Creepy cult alert here, right? But... Nonetheless, Solomon had these thousand women that he lived with. So it would make sense. If there's a love song in the Bible, this guy's going to be the one to write it. Makes total sense. So Solomon wrote this love song. And we don't know if it's, hopefully it's not for his sake. We don't know if it's specifically for one of his wives. Like, ouch, how do you, like, how do, you do that to the other 999 women in your life? Yeah, I wrote this one for, for her. And the rest of you can just listen and read it later on in the scriptures, right? We don't know that. Uh, so we're going to talk about it through, we're going to talk about th- this love song through the lens of three classic love songs. Before we do that, let me just talk about, there's a couple of difficulties with this book of the Bible. And they're minor, but let's look at them. Let's, we'll look at one now and one in just a minute. So the first difficulty with this book, the Song of Solomon, is how do we interpret it correctly? How do we read it correctly? That's the, like the number one rule with the Bible is you got to read it right. That's just how it is. That's how it works. So the question is, is this book of the Bible, is it just a love song with no other meaning, no other deeper meaning, no, or is it allegorical in nature? Are there maybe meanings under the surface that even thousands of years later we can pull from it? Are there things that other ancient Jews reading this in their scriptures, they would have seen a deeper, larger umbrella message to this love song? 
So for hundreds and hundreds of years of biblical scholarship, it was believed that this was allegorical. There's a deeper meaning than just this love poem in the middle of the Old Testament. Now, recent scholarship, the last maybe 100, 200 years, that has kind of pulled back some where scholars would say, I think maybe it's split half and half even now. Well, no, just don't read any more into it than it's there. It's just a love poem. Yeah, it's kind of weird that the Holy Spirit inspired that to be included in there, but it's there, so just read it, enjoy it, and that's just it. So I tend to agree with those who would say there is an allegorical nature to this scripture. Now, not everything in scripture can you do that to. There are certain things, and I think this is written in a certain way. It's poetic by nature, so songs are going to have words to them, but when three or four different people hear that same song, they're going to maybe get something different out of it. I think the same thing applies here in Song of Solomon. I think Solomon is writing on the surface a love song, whether it's to a specific woman or not, or to women of the world, you know, whoever he, can, whoever he hasn't married yet, maybe he'll marry me now after I woo you with this song. If there's any of you left, right? Uh, but I do think that the ancient Jewish people could and would have read more into it than that, as we'll see. And I think that we as followers of Jesus today can also get something out of it more than just the words on the page. So that, I think that's where we're going to go. We'll talk about the other difficulty uh, with this book here in just a minute. So here's the idea, and here, here's why I lean in that. We'd say, well, why do you lean allegorical? Here's why. Jesus even says in the, in, the, in the New Testament about the Old Testament, he says, remember, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Now, when he says the word law, he's not just talking about the first five books of the Bible. He's not just talking about the Ten Commandments of the Bible. He's talking about the entire Hebrew Scripture. He says, I came to fulfill all of that. So, he's in, there's, a, there's a red strand throughout the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, that is Christ. He is woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. That's the part of divinely inspired that is so awesome and important for us to understand. God inspired everything that's in the Bible to be there for a specific purpose, and one of those purposes, if not the main purpose, is to show that Christ was there all along. So what is revealed in the New Testament that Jesus comes out and says, hey, it was all about me, it was always there under the surface in a way, even here in Song of Solomon. So that's why I would tend to say there is a deeper meaning to it. So what we're going to look at today through the Song of Solomon are, I think, what we're going to call three relational character traits that we look at in relationships, in sort of romantic relationships, and throughout the Song of Solomon, and I think we can apply them to our faith, our love for Jesus as well. So that's what we're going to do, again, through the, using these classic love songs. So here's song number one. Are you ready? This is the actual pitch. If I were, if I were on this infomercial, this is how it would go. Go back with me to the 1980s, the early 1980s. What a time to be alive. I mean, I wasn't alive then. But what a time to be alive. <laughs> and in the 80s, you know, what's more romantic? If we're talking about love songs today on this compilation of three songs on three CDs that you can purchase today for $19.99 plus shipping, what is more romantic than a duet? Nothing. So today our first song is going to be that 1981 classic duet, Endless Love. Okay, scene. All right, so... Song of Solomon shows us what endless love looks like. It shows us the character trait from this song is obviously in the title, love. This song, the Song of Solomon, is very intimate, very passionate. If you don't think that there's some naughty stuff in the Bible, this is where it's at. 
I mean, some of the language in there, even in English, it will make you be like, whoa, like God allowed that in there? Yeah, he inspired it to go in there. Whoa, that's like, that's, we're getting R-rated here. Yes, it is. There are some things that they say that you can be like, does he mean that? He pro- whatever you're thinking, he probably meant that. Yes, it, it is that filthy at some point, okay? So it is a love song. It is. You have to put like a parent disclaimer on the corner of the album, you know, so your kids can't get into this kind of stuff, all right? It is passionate. It is intimate. It is a love song. And so here's a couple of verses that show what this endless love looks like. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. My lover is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies. And then chapter 7, verse 10. I am my lover's, and he claims me as his own. So what what this song is, it kind of goes back and forth between a woman and the man, the woman and the man. So we're going to see from different perspectives what that looks like or why there are two different perspectives here. So we see, obviously, on the surface, this is a love song. They're singing to each other, about each other, in a very intimate sort of way. But allegorically, when we pull back and look at what we can learn from that, uh, what we see first, how Israel might have seen this, is how much God loves them. Israel would read into this how much God loves them. So the question is, how much does God love Israel? The answer is, very clearly, it says, he claims me as his own. This is not a small thing. This is not an insignificant detail. Let's look here at a couple of verses from some of the prophets later on. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Let's look at this for just a second. Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God to Israel, and he says, But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Look at that very last part. That is word for word what we just read in Song of Solomon. You are mine. God has this sort of uh, possessive nature in a romantic sort of way to the nation of Israel. It's endless love. And he says here the words, I created you, I formed you. This is not simply this idea that God creates life, which he does. It's not just saying God is the author of all life, which he is. What it's saying, he says to Jacob, to Israel, that's the same thing. So before Israel was Israel, before Jacob, okay, <laughs> okay, rewind that infomercial for a second. Take two, okay. So Israel and Jacob, if you go back to the time of Abraham, they're the same person. Jacob has this name Jacob until he has an encounter with God. His name is changed to Israel. Okay, so that's what we see here. So even in giving both names, even God shows a bit of intimacy with his people here. He, he, he calls them by their real name, Jacob. He gets down, I know who you are. I know you intimately. I love you in that way. So he's not just saying, I create life. I'm the author of life. He's saying, no, I created you. He's telling Israel, before me, you were nothing. You didn't exist. There was no, if, there is no, if there is no Hebrew God, there is no Hebrew people. That is their identifying factor. That is what, they're not an ethnic, even today, Jews are not an ethnic group. They are a religious group, even now. And that is the unifying factor that God is saying, hey, I called you. I called you by name. And so he even says here, I ransomed you, I called you by name. So God started with Abraham. He chose this man on purpose. He chose and blessed him and his descendants on purpose. And from them, he says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he says, I'll make out of you a mighty nation. That's what Israel became. That's who they are. He, they are a people made for God with a unique identity. That is how much God loves Israel. He called them. He chose them. He created them. 
Jeremiah 31, 3, the prophet Jeremiah says it this way, Long ago the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. So even here, he says everlasting, unfailing, or for our purposes, it's endless love, right? Yeah, so God is saying this, like before Lionel and Diana Ross sang this, God was telling Israel a long time ago about this endless love. Let me just pause for a second before we get to how we view this as non-Jews. Let me just make this important point. I was going to spend more time on this, but wisdom got the better part of me, and I was like, nope, we're not going to do that. Just quick and easy. Let's talk about it. It's important, though. There's this idea when we talk about God viewing Israel this way. Now we're going to look at how Jesus views the church with the same text. But here's an important thing to talk about for a second. There's this belief called replacement theology. Maybe you've heard of that before. Maybe you haven't. If you haven't, it's simply this. Replacement theology is this idea that the church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament church, replaces Israel as God's chosen people. That is a false view of how things work. And I I won't get into it, but if you want to know more about that, read Romans chapter 11. Anyone who believes in replacement theology either has not read Romans 11 or they have read it incorrectly because Paul is very clear that the only thing, the only reason God rejects anyone is that they reject him through his son Jesus, okay? So that's the thing, that Israel has always been, as we saw here, always been God's chosen special people. And they continue to be God's chosen special people year after year, generation after generation, as through time, God continues to more fully reveal himself to them. As we'll see in a little bit, he makes different covenants or agreements that reveals more about who he is. So here's the thing. The full and final revelation of who God is comes in his son, Jesus. So the, Jesus even says he came, he came for Israel. That was the point. So God reveals himself, you know, through Adam and then through Noah and then through uh, Abraham and then through Moses and then through David and then through the prophets and then through Jesus. Like he, this is supposed to be, hey, this is who I am in flesh and blood. You can get to know me better than you've ever known me before. My hands, my feet, you can see me, you can hear me. But that's not how the plan actually went, is it? Because unfortunately, even though that was the full and final revelation of God, the people that Jesus came for, by and large, rejected that full and final revelation. They rejected him as their Messiah. So there are, there are a pocket of people in the Jewish community that put their faith in him, and there are many, and we are the people that come generations later, outside of the Jewish faith who have put our faith in that same Jesus. So the thing is, though, that the church does not replace now Israel. We, we, it's not like he pushed them off to the side, and now we take the place on the pedestal of number one in God's heart. Actually, what Romans 11 tells us as you read it is, those who didn't believe in Israel, were, those limbs were cut off, and the ones outside of the plant that did believe in him were grafted in, added in to the same plant. So it's not that Israel is more special than the church. It is not that the church replaces even modern-day Israel in that way. It's that we are, if we put our faith in Christ, we are the same. We We are all God's people. I know that's maybe a lot there, and you feel like that's not important, but... Maybe, maybe later it'll, it'll make sense, or you'll, you'll, maybe you do see that, I don't know. Um, I'm getting in my own head today, just heads up, spoiler alert. Anyway, so we see here, and here's the thing about endless love. If God were to replace Israel with the church, that would be ended love. Well, I loved you for a while until you turned your back on me, and now I've replaced you with this other person. 
That's not how God works. He keeps his promises. It's endless love. So there is still, and so that's the thing even with modern day Israel, there are even New Testament verses that you can, you can look up that hint at a hopeful uh, revival of the Jewish people an awakening in the Jewish people to turn their hearts to Christ. There is that hope that sometime, sometime maybe even an hour a day, that that will happen. And so we see that he has not rejected them or abandoned them, but he has endless love for them. But now, how, so with that being said, how, how do we as Christians view Song of Solomon in this way? So what we get to is how Jesus views us as the church. We saw how God viewed Israel and still does, but now we see how specifically Jesus views us as the church. And the question is, how much does Jesus love you? But this then gets to the second difficulty very quickly about Song of Solomon, and that's mainly for the men in the room. I I understand the difficulty for men when we talk about loving Jesus. There can be a difficulty there. It's like, I don't really know if I want to be in love with a dude, quite honestly. There's a barrier there. We're not as as emotional type of beings, so even this lovey-dovey, loving Jesus thing can be difficult for men. So that is a difficulty here as we read this and try to pull this out of here that we just need to say, hey guys, we just have to kind of work through that barrier a little bit. We have to kind of think, okay, this is not in the same physical sort of intimate way. This is like a spiritual thing, and we use this language, and I might not be comfortable with it. It may not be like my cup of tea, but that's how this is, is viewed in this type of relationship. So just wanted to mention that off the bat and say, if you're, if you're a guy and you're kind of thinking, this is kind of awkward, kind of weird, me loving Jesus, I get you. I understand, but we're gonna, we, we just have to kind of understand what that really means. But let's get back to the question. How much does Jesus love you? A lot. So Paul, Paul says it this way in Ephesians. He, he talks about a husband and wife and relates it to Jesus and the church in that relationship. Here's what he says, Ephesians 5.21. Paul says, and further, he's talking to husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he, gets, then he talks about how women submit to their husbands, and that's where people you know, sometimes get off track here. But he, where does he start? Submit to one another. So women do that with their husbands in a specific way, and then we'll skip, we'll skip that just for time, just for now, uh, to verse 25 and see it, why this is important. Verse 25, for husbands, here's how we submit to our wives, men. This means to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How much did he love her? He gave up his life for her. So I could spend the rest of my time talking to the husbands about this is how we love our wives and how to do that. But anyway, just, just figure it out. We're smart. We're smart, guys. You know what that means. The point of what we're trying to get to today is how much Jesus loves you as a follower of him, how much he loves his people, how much he loves the church. He loves you enough to give up his life for you. Jesus gave his life for you. He took your sin upon himself. He took your shame upon himself. He took God's wrath upon you, upon himself. As Romans 5 tells us that he did this while we were yet sinners, he would have had to. There's no other, no other way that would work, but we sometimes don't view it in that order. While we were, even and later in Romans 5, he says, while we were enemies of God, Christ gave himself up for his enemies. No one does that. No one sacrifices themselves for their enemy. That is not how life works. That's not how war works. That's not how anything works. But Jesus, that's how that works for him. And he did this. Here's the degree to which he, Jesus loves you and I. He did this risking ultimate rejection. So he took our place on our cross for our sin and our shame and our guilt and God's wrath that we deserve, and he, there's no guarantee that we're going to accept him in return. 
And that's really, sadly, the case with most people. A majority of the people that Christ died for still reject him. They live their whole life and die still rejecting him. But Christ went through that cross anyway. This is endless love. This is limitless love. And there's one other aspect to to the love of Christ, and then we'll get on to the other two, is sometimes we think about how much Jesus loves us, so we get caught up in that, and then we're tempted to be like, well, does he really love me that much? Like, there's got to be a limit. To, there's there's got to be, you know, a cap. Or if I do so many bad things, or if I do something that's so egregious, or you don't know where I've been or what I've done, he could never love me. Can I just tell you gladly that you are wrong? Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul again writing here says this. He writes, I am convinced that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, how much does Jesus love you? Here's how much. There is nothing that you can ever do that will make him stop loving you. There is no power in the universe that can keep Christ from loving you. There is no mistake you can make so bad, so offensive to him that he will stop loving you. That is endless love. And think about how do we know this? Well, when Jesus was here on earth before he died, who did he love with his life? He loved the cheaters, the thieves, the liars, the prostitutes, the diseased, the outcasts, the unlovable. That's who he spent his time with. The people who no one else would love, Jesus loved. The people that never would have deserved love, Jesus loved. The people on the outside that didn't feel like they belonged, Jesus loved. The people that were crucifying him on the cross, Jesus loved. How much does Jesus love you? It is endless. There is no power, there is no force, there is no thing, there is no event that can cause Christ to stop loving you to the degree that he would die for you. It's endless love. That's what that is. Here's the second song that we will look at here for a minute. So the second song today, you know, relationships aren't just about romance. You know, some love songs remind us of the commitment involved to make it work long term. And so what we see here is this idea in Tammy Wynette's famous song, Stand By Your Man. (laughs) Song of Solomon tells us about the importance of faithfulness, as we see here. Let's read Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 7. This is the woman talking to her lover. She says, tell me, my love, where are you leading your flock today? Where will you rest your sheep at noon? For why should I wander like a prostitute among your friends and their flocks? Strong language here. Like I told you, this gets pretty dicey. And we see this. We will see this. I won't talk about this every week for the next couple of months. But we're getting into the the prophets starting next week, which is a lot of the rest of the Old Testament. This is a theme that we will see a lot from the prophets. God sees his... God's agreement with Israel calling them is a covenant. It's an agreement. 
But it's not just this contractual thing, sign the dotted line, initial here, initial here. It is a love contract. It is a vow, like you would, like you would or have said at your wedding. That is how God feels about Israel. We have made this agreement. I have offered you to be my people, and you enter into this love agreement, this, this contract with me, this covenant with me, to remain faithful to one another. That's, what, that's how God sees this. And so when he sees his people stray from him, he sees it as prostitution. And he says it over and over and over again in different ways, sometimes really strong ways or weird ways. This is how he views his people. He takes his agreement seriously. He, he expects faithfulness from his people. And unfortunately for Israel, if you know how that goes in the Old Testament, they were kind of on again, off again with God. They kind of wanted an open marriage with God at times. They wanted to include a third person in this, like, whoa, no, 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 we're not doing that freaky-deaky stuff. We're not into, I'm not into that, all right? They maybe had some commitment issues, Israel did. And here's the thing, we are tempted to do the exact same thing. Here's what Paul writes, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ, but I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. So as we just said earlier, nothing can separate us from the love of God. However, there are so many things that constantly and consistently try to keep us from our love for God. See how that works? There is nothing that can keep you from God loving you, but every day we are met with forces that are trying to keep us from loving God. Jesus says this all the time, whether we realize it or not. This is why Jesus talks about money and wealth and possessions all the time. More than heaven and hell combined, he talks about money, wealth, and possessions. Not because he's trying to get rich. If he were, he failed at that, okay? He was miserable at fundraising. So that's not his purpose for talking about money all the time. But he says we can't serve both God and money because he knows how weak we are with temporary things. He knows how easy it can be for us to turn tools into idols, money being the number one. So this is why Jesus says, don't store treasures here on earth because thieves can break in and steal and moths and rust will destroy your stuff, but instead store up treasures in heaven. He says that because he knows that we can be impulsive and short-sighted in how we live life and not be faithful. He knows that we can place too much value on insignificant things. This is why Jesus says to follow him this is a big one. Jesus says to follow me, you must hate your father and mother and brother and sister and spouse and children to follow Jesus. He says you have to hate all of your family. Now, for some of you in the room, you're like, sign me up, Jesus. I will follow you. <laughs> Not a problem there, Jesus. I'm totally fine with that one. Now, he doesn't obviously mean to hate your family or your siblings or your parents. That's not what he's, he would be breaking one of the Ten Commandments to say that, honor your father and mother, right? What he's saying, obviously, maybe not so obviously, but what he's saying is, your love for me should be so white hot that in comparison to any other relationship you have, it looks like hate. Your faithfulness to Jesus should be so intense 
so strong that your faithfulness to everybody else in your life, including your spouse, Jesus says, looks like nothing. That's what, it's, that's what Jesus says to follow him. It requires extreme faithfulness. And that's why Jesus says to follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and then follow him. Faithfulness is required. Because Jesus knows that sometimes we're too into ourselves. We're too into our agenda, my plan, my way. He knows that we are constantly tempted to follow other ways and other plans. Jesus knows that left to ourselves, we will waste our lives on meaningless and selfish pursuits that lead to nowhere but emptiness, regret, and self-worship. Jesus knows how easy it is for every, even ardent followers of him. He knows even the most faithful among us are not immune to the pressures of life, to the temptations of life, to not putting him first. Jesus knows we are all susceptible to this. So he makes it very clear, very plain, very often, faithfulness is a must in following him. That's how Jesus views this relationship. And so when we begin to kind of stray or fade or wane in that relationship, how many of you know it it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It's not an instantaneous thing. I love Jesus, and now next day I hate Jesus. That doesn't happen that way, typically. It happens slowly over time. This is what uh, John writes when he has this revelation of Jesus. Jesus talks to the seven churches that John had pastored in the first part of Revelation. To the church in Ephesus, here's what Jesus says. He says, you've done some good things, and I see what you're doing, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. It's not like a, I, I love you, I hate you. As you did at first, things have gotten in the way. Things have crept in. Idols have arisen. The cares and pressures of life have taken preeminence over Jesus. Because like with any relationship, at first, our faith is very exciting. It's new, it's fresh, it's so cool, there's so much I don't know, there's so much I want to know, but like with any relationship, without intentional cultivation, that relationship can turn stale and cold. Like with any relationship, without continued shared experience and time together, that relationship becomes strained and distanced, and eventually it will die. Jesus knows this. So, What happens is before long, you go from lovers to roommates. We want to avoid this, obviously, in our marriages, but we also want to avoid this in our faith. So here's the the good news. If you feel that you're slipping away from God, just move in the opposite direction you've been going in, okay? I know that sounds too easy, and it maybe is not as easy as it sounds, but it's possible. Let me just say this as well. If you sense distance with God, wait for it. He hasn't moved, (laughs) all right? The distance that's there is created by us. Our hearts fade. Our intentionality fades. Our willingness to put him first takes a back seat. He hasn't moved. Just go back to him. If you've let other things get in the way, just reprioritize some things. Move some stuff that's way up at the top, maybe a little bit down a rung or two to make sure that Jesus is at the top. He says, you need to love me first and love me most. It's Commitment, it's faithfulness. It's, we want to stand by our man and show the world we love him. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't actually play the clips because of copyright infringement issues, you know, YouTube. But anyway, so you understand that. 
Here's the third song that we'll end on for just a few minutes. The third song. So, you know, they say that absence makes the heart grow fonder, don't they? You ever heard that before? Well, maybe time or distance for you has caused a relationship to kind of fall apart. So maybe what you need is what that 1978 classic says. You need to be reunited. (laughs) And it feels so good. Yeah, you need that, all right? Let's see how Song of Solomon tells us about being reunited. This is about anticipation. Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse 2. This is, again, the woman in the the love song. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. You ever been there before? (laughs) You slept, but your heart was awake? Yeah. When I heard my lover knocking and calling, open to me, my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. Guys, write this down. This is good stuff, right? (laughs) My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. But I responded, I've taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I've washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? My lover tried to unlatch the door, and my heart thrilled within me. I jumped, op- I jumped to open the door for my love, and my hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. The night watchmen found me, and they made their, as they made their rounds, they beat and bruised me and stripped off my veil, those watchmen on the walls. Make this promise, O women of Jerusalem, if you find my lover, tell him I am weak with love. We see a similar scenario a couple of times, at least one more time, in Song of Solomon, where the, the lover is gone, he's gone away, and then he, she's longing for him to come back. She's waiting for him to return. There's this anticipation with her. And she goes and looks for him. And this time what she finds is she's actually beaten uh, and mistreated by those that should be protecting her. And and she's weary with love, she says. I think to a, a degree this describes us in Christ very well. So Israel had waited and waited and waited for their Savior for hundreds of years. They lived with anticipation for their Messiah to come and save them. And they, again, they wait for hundreds of years. When he shows up, he's only here for like three decades, and then he's gone again. And he's been gone for longer than they even waited for him to come the first time. So we are living in Song of Solomon chapter 5. We, we sort of have this idea of what it's like to be around him. We have this understanding, but there's this longing that we have, hopefully, for him to return. There's this anticipation for him. And Jesus kind of tells us this is going to happen. So in the middle of John, John 14, 15, 16, he's sitting with his disciples basically at the Last Supper, and he's telling them, hey, things are about to change big time. Like, I've been with you guys day in, day out for a couple of years now. I'm about to go and be gone forever. So I'm, I'm like, in a couple of days, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise from the dead. Things are going to look like, oh, this is, he's back. And then I'm going to be gone in a few weeks after that. And so, and then in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus, after he's resurrected, he ascends into heaven, right? And the disciples are there, and they're just looking at the sky. Probably, okay, how long is he going to be gone? Last time it was like three days. Let's just see. And so they're looking at the sky, just kind of waiting, waiting. And an angel comes and says, hey, guys, you got to go out and do your thing because Jesus will come back in the same way that, he, that you saw him leave. And from that day on, they lived with this anticipation of the return of Christ, They live with this expectation that he's going to come back any day. And we see this in the writings of his disciples. So again, this is Paul, a lot of Paul today. So it's Paul and Solomon. Here we go. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, We are citizens of heaven, 
where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. And then in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Paul again, And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. In both these scriptures, Paul uses that same word, eagerly. We eagerly await the return of Christ. Again, the friends and followers of Jesus expected him to return in their lifetime. When he said, I'm going to be gone, he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. It's like, well, how long did it take to get your Airbnb ready, Jesus? Like, it's been a while. Come on. It's been a decade. Come on. It's been 15 years. Come on. Like, your, your dudes are getting killed for you. Like, let's come on. Let's, you know, figure this out. And he still hasn't returned. But they had this expectation. It could be today. It could be before I finish this sentence, you know. <laughs> Do you have that expectation, that eager expectation for the return of Christ, for his appearing? It's, it's hard to do that. that. Again, the things of life get in the way. We get too temporarily minded. We get too into our, the calendar, the schedule. Like, if I plan a month out, that's good. I'm not going to wait for Jesus. Like, I got things to, to do, and I, got, I have things I want to see happen before he comes. That's a, a common argument. Well, I've got things I want to, you know, it'd be great for him to come back, but I want to see my, you know, kid graduate from high school. I was like, man, I would trade off the return of Christ for anything. Because that means that all wrongs will now be righted, all, all evil is now vanquished and conquered, everything is now perfect as it was designed to be from the beginning and as it will be forever, no pain, sickness, suffering, death, it's all, it's all a distant memory, like, I'll, I'll, I'll take that, I'll take that. So I want us to live in that eager expectation. Even John, at the very end of Revelation, the next to last verse of the Bible, Jesus tells John, behold, I am coming soon. And John's reply is, yes, come quickly, Lord Jesus. May that be the way that we live, this eager expectation. He could come back today. I know it's not like bright and sunny. He's going to come in the clouds. There's a ton of clouds to come in today, Jesus. Like, come on. Today's a perfect day. <laughs> One more verse as we close, and it kind of ties all three of these together, this anticipation, this faithfulness, and this love. It's Titus. Again, Paul writing to Titus, a young minister, he says this, Titus 2, 12 and 13. We are, instructed, we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Let's break this down for just one second and see all three parts of what we talked about today in this scripture. The first part, we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. The question is, why? What's our motivation for living that way? We talked about it a little bit on Wednesday night. What's our motivation for turning from godless living and sinful pleasures? It's not out of guilt. It's not out of fear. It's not out of performance. It's not to impress people. It's out of that love, that endless love for Christ. We turn from these things that don't bring what they promise to one who always does what he promises. We turn from these things that overpromise and underdeliver, and, and we turn to a Savior that has never failed, ever. That's why. That's that love. And then he goes on, we should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. That's the faithfulness part that we talked about. There are temptations all around. So may we live with eternal perspective. 
May we live with less temporal attachment to these things that creep in our heart, that become idols, that get in the way of our faithfulness and devotion to Christ. And then he says, we do all of this while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. We anticipate being reunited, or really for our case, united, with our Savior once and for all. So this is what Song of Solomon shows us as Christians, that we can live in love with Jesus, live in faithfulness to Jesus, and live in anticipation for Jesus. That's the moral of this unique book, Song of Solomon. Let's pray. God, my prayer is today that we would hear what's been said and receive what's, what's been said today. We take a look at this obscure, unique, sometimes difficult to read and interpret book of the Bible, but there's so much here that we can glean from it spiritually. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to fall more and more in love with Jesus than ever before. Every day, finding new ways to love him, new ways to appreciate him, new ways to live in love with him. Help us to know the depth of Christ's love for us as a motivating factor to share our love for him. And God, I pray that the Holy Spirit also empower us toward faithfulness in our relationship with Jesus. Point out those things to us that become, have become maybe a little too important, maybe are on the verge of idol status, things that we treasure a little too much that maybe don't put Jesus first in that area or in that arena of our heart, but help us to love Jesus first and to love him most in a life of faithfulness. And God, I pray that with love and faithfulness, we would live in anticipation of your soon return. It could happen at any moment. It could happen any day. And so I pray that our hearts would have this eternal perspective, this long view mindset that, Jesus, we want you to come. Like John said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us to live in that anticipation, faithfulness, and love to help those around us to see how awesome you are and how awesome a life lived with you really, truly is. So thank you for using us in that way and for blessing us in that way. And I pray that we would all uh, walk out of this place today with that love, faithfulness, and anticipation in our hearts more than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen.